Today, we're going to cover uh, the First Ecumenical Council, which is the Council of Nicaea in the uh, year 325. And this council also corresponds with the, in 324, was the uh, Constantine's victory over Licinius and his conquest of the Eastern Roman Empire. And so it's also sort of the beginning of the Christian Roman Empire. So it's a, a major sort of turning point in our uh, church history. But, but in other ways, it's, uh, it's really continuous with things that have gone on before. Uh, it's the, what we call the first ecumenical council, but actually church councils go back even into the New Testament in the council in Jerusalem. But, if even, but all the church history we've kind of been reading, there's, there were regional councils that, were, that met to decide two things. One, they were administrative uh, council meetings of the bishops of an area, but also uh, larger meetings of bishops to decide controversies. And so Nicaea is just another uh, large meeting to decide a controversy that was plaguing the church. So in that sense, it was just a continuation of the practice of the church. Another thing about the Council of Nicaea that would be memorable for us is that when in the uh, liturgy we talk, we say the uh, Nicene Creed, which actually is the creed of the Second Ecumenical Council. It's not really uh, exactly the way it's find it in Nicaea, but that is um, kind of where that creed that we use now was first uh, accepted as a general, uh, first version of it accepted as a, a general statement of faith for the whole church. Uh, but this also was not an innovation. This is something when we read Irenaeus and he talks about the things that the apostles gave the church sort of as marks of the true church versus the Gnostic teachers. He talks about the scriptures and uh, the unbroken tradition, and then he also talks about the rule of faith. And when, if you remember, if you were here, that we read when he talks about the rule of faith, it's actually a sort of very simple form of the creed we use right now. So the church's practice of having a creed uh, which defines its basic uh, teachings was something that goes back right to the apostolic times. And in the, and in the council, when they were looking for a creed, they didn't just decide, oh, well, let's make up a creed. They said, well, let's take a, a baptismal creed that already exists. Uh, and the one they were started with was the one uh, from Caesarea in, uh, in Palestine. And they started with that, and then they uh, modified it to try to address the problems uh, that, were, that were facing the church right then. Um, the other uh, kind of change for the church was, that, again, with the Christian emperor. Uh, sometimes people have talked about this as a period, uh, beginning of the churches uh, sort of being dominated by the emperors. They, call it, they use the term Caesaropapism. They say, well, okay, the Roman Catholic Church has their, their pope, but the Byzantine church is just ruled by the emperor. And... Uh, it's true that this is the first time we have an emperor, we, the emperor becomes a prominent member of the church, but what's not true is to imagine that the emperor's role in any way was similar to, the, let's say, the modern Roman Catholic view of a, of a pope as, a, as someone who rules over the church or makes do doctrinal decisions. In this case, uh, Constantine called the council, actually, and when he was 
emperor over the West, he had summoned a number of councils to investigate the Donatist problem, partly because the Donatists had appealed to him uh, against the church. <laughs> they had asked him to intervene uh, to give him for financial reasons, actually. And then so the emperor, rather than investigating it himself, he asked the bishops to hold a council and to look into this question. And so here also, uh, hearing that there was a problem, a doctrinal problem, he didn't come running over to himself, decide, well, which doctrine's correct. He just said, well, there's a problem, then you bishops need to solve the problem. So he essentially was acting as a facilitator to allow the church to operate according to its normal uh, method, which is by a council of the bishops to uh, investigate the problem and to reach a conclusion. The other thing that I want to bring up is that, okay, the Council of Nicaea uh, primarily had to do with the problem of, of areas. And in some ways, uh, well, when we talk about, well, there's two things. One is that the problem of areas is not a problem that arose with areas. It's a problem that relates to putting together the uh, belief in one God, which the church inherited from the Old Testament, and the question of uh, also a belief in Christ. And so therefore, how do those two go together? And this was a uh, sort of ongoing controversy leading at the time before the Great Persecution. And in a way, uh, Arius sort of brought this controversy you know, into play after, at the, right at the end of the persecution here, and this is the council to address it. The second thing is that uh, when you talk about, in, in textbooks, uh, when they talk about the Arian controversy, they actually are usually talking about the period from Nicaea until the next ecumenical council in 381, uh, the second ecumenical council in Constantinople. But really, uh, that's somewhat of a misnomer because the the controversy, uh, in a sense, uh, the controversy over Arius really ends at the Council of Nicaea and, in a sense, has already been ended uh, by local councils before. Uh, the controversy between the two councils is really a controversy about um, the proper role of a terminolo proper terminology and also perhaps the proper role of philosophical language in the church. And it's, it's really um, a struggle between uh, those who wanted to, let's say, preserve only uh, biblical language in the church's statements and those who wanted to introduce philosophical language uh, to more clearly define the church's teachings. And ultimately, the second is what uh, the church decided on. But just to back up, to talk about Arius, he was a priest uh, living in Alexandria, which is, this is Egypt down here, and that's Alexandria. Um, he was originally part of the Miletian Schism, which was a, kind of similar to the Donatists. It was a group of people that broke away from the patriarch because they didn't think he was strict enough during the persecutions. But then he came back, rejoined the Orthodox Church, uh, was ordained a priest. But he began... Uh, preaching really in one way against a heresy that existed earlier uh, in Antioch <coughs> where um, he had a, a teacher and his the 
following earlier had been someone named Paul of Samosata, who was the patriarch of Antioch under, um, there was a kingdom that took over Antioch for a while, uh, an Arab kingdom under Zenobia, and he was what her, uh, one of her government officials, and he got to be made patriarch uh, because of that. And But he uh, was trying to also solve uh, this problem of how to deal with the fact, okay, of sort of one God over here and Christ over here. Now, uh, Paul's solution was, well, twofold, but uh, one the main part that we deal with is something called modalism, which is uh, a belief that I found out surprisingly is, is still uh, taught by one of the uh, denominations today of a Pentecostal group, which is uh, called modalism, meaning modes, so that there is one God, as Paul says, and that one God is really one person. But he appears in different modes depending on the time or, you know, or you know, for whatever circumstance. Um, the way I heard it explained recently was uh, that the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit at the time of the now, you know, but, uh, but that he's the same person with different masks, essentially. And this was, Paul, similar, not quite that way, but a similar solution was one that Paul came up with. And he uh, was condemned by the bishops in his area, in the local council, and uh, but uh, was able to hang on to the church until Zenobia was defeated and his protector was taken away and then he was removed. But this happened around 260. And the, the, uh, one of his opponents was uh, someone named Lucian who <coughs> emphasized the uh, reality of Christ's existence, the Son of God, let's say existence, uh, because Paul actually had another problem, but not we'll deal with now. But that 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 this no, the Son of God is a real, a real person. The Father, you have the Father, and then you have the Son. So, <clears throat> Arius kind of taking this idea, uh, which is a is partly is, a, is correct, of course, that we that we do believe the Son and the Holy Spirit are real people, but he tried to sort of uh, emphasize it by distinguishing God from the Son of God. In other words, so he, he said, oh, well, yes, there is one God, and that is the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit are, are not God. Okay? They, are, they are creatures uh, made by God, but they are, they are eter- kind of almost eternal creatures, but not quite. You know, that's the, so he didn't, wasn't thinking that Christ was just a man or something like that, but he said, no, no, it's... Is higher than an angel, but not, but not divine. So, this is so trying to avoid uh, the son just becoming an aspect of the father. But on the other hand, but then by, if you say that the son isn't God, you have another problem, and that is then that the son of God is not the divine son of God who died for our salvation and rose from the dead, and this is why the church then reacted against Arius and uh, the local, again, local uh, church responded with a council condemning him and this was uh, Patriarch Alexander in uh, around 320. Now, at that point, uh, 
mostly everyone agreed that Arius, you know, had uh, made a mistake on this. And when the, but there was some, uh, he had some friends who, while they didn't completely agree with him, were still trying to kind of keep him from being condemned, I guess. And so when the, in 324, when the Emperor Constantine uh, took over, it was decided that he heard this problem, so he sent his uh, theological advisor, uh, Hazius of Cordova from Spain, to come over and try to settle things. And so he came in, and uh, they had a local council in Antioch, which did condemn Arius and uh, uh, suggest basic and supported the, the Patriarch Alexander, and that just and so then the, the council in Nicaea, in a way, Nicaea is up here, which um, that this is before Constantinople was built. So at that time, the, the capital was Nicomedia, which had been the capital under uh, Diocletian, and Nicaea is right next door. So they decided to have the. Uh, a council, a general council, to sort of solidify, you know, that, that everybody agreed that Alexander was right and Arius was wrong. And as far as that went, everybody did did agree, pretty much. There were uh, Arius and maybe only two bishops who who, di who didn't go along with that. But uh, <clears throat> but everyone agreed to that. The, then the question is, well, <clears throat> what can we do to sort of make sure that Arius, you know, teaching of Arius doesn't come around again? And so they suggested the term homoousios, which comes from the Latin consubstantial, and which was a phrase, uh, this is a phrase in, that's been used in Latin since the time of Tertullian to describe the Trinity. The, in Greek, however, the term homoousios was not commonly used other than, uh, unfortunately, by uh, Paul of Samosata and Sibelius. It was a uh, term connected with modalism. So it was accepted at the council, but afterwards uh, people were in the East were concerned about it because they, in the East, they considered modalism as the major problem. And uh, part of this was also that uh, some of the people at Nicaea were uh, semi-modalists, let's say. Uh, Marcellus of Ankara, who was a friend of Athanasius, had some kind of modalist ideas about that didn't make it appear that the son was really an actual person. The other thing is that the word uh, substance in Latin, well, literally, substantia means to stand underneath something. Now, the term substance in Latin really means pretty much what we would think of as an essence, something the, the what something is, it's, its nature or something. But in Greek, the, the literal term to stand under uh, is the Greek word hypostasis, which also means just literally stand under. But it is the, in Greek, it's really the theological term for a person. And so uh, another kind of issue was that the uh, Western authors wanted to speak really of one substance. And traditionally in the Greek church, the norm w uh, was to speak of three hypostases. And this led to some controversy also uh, as to you know which was really the proper way to speak. After the council, the Council of Nicaea was not really uh, repudiated in the East, but it, it was uh, not 
really very much reaffirmed. Some of the, uh, Marcellus was uh, uh, deposed for modalism and Athanasius uh, was, he was also deposed, but not for doctrinal reasons, but because of the, uh, the Miletians. The Miletian schism had been reunited to the Church of the Council of Nicaea, but uh, the Miletian group uh, was still somehow in controversy with Athanasius, and they, they were protesting that Athanasius was being too uh, high-handed with them, and so the emperor removed him to the west. So you had Marcellus and Athanasius in the west, and the west uh, kind of they voted to reinstate these two, feeling that they were sort of the victims of Arian attacks. And the East sort of took the idea that no, uh, Marcellus, you know, they were removed for other reasons. And the East started to, they tried to have sort of joint councils to resolve these things, but the two would not, the West only wanted to have councils with Athanasius and Marcellus. The East did not want to have councils, wouldn't, wouldn't agree to that because they said they're deposed. And the Eastern councils started to try to develop um, I guess a, a formula for talking about the, that would refute Arius, talking about the divinity of Christ, but without using uh, philosophical language. And this uh, ultimately led them to uh, the term, well, which uh, the usia being the essence here, being sort of the non-biblical term. And so they, they try to use other biblical phrases and analogies to, to talk about Christ's relationship to the Son. And uh, for a while, that, what happened in a way is the East and the West just sort of went kind of separate ways. Um, the West continued to affirm Nicaea, the East affirming uh, sort of non-homoousius, uh, different non-homoousius formulas, until... Uh, in 350, well, okay, I should say, the, um, the reason they were able to go separate ways is that Constantine had died in 337, and so there were two brothers, uh, Constance in the West, and who sort of supported the West to uh, go sick with Nicaea, and Constantius in the East, who supported this conservative reaction against uh, philosophical language. Now, in 350, the Western one brother, he died, and the uh, Constantius became the emperor of the whole empire. And so for a while, uh, the West and East were united in, in accepting kind of this uh, more vague type of formulas. But what happened uh, was that within that vagueness, uh, this gave an opportunity for a resurgence of Arianism. So the, the victory, in a way, of Constantius was sort of that definitely modalism had to be excluded, was his sort of main thing. Oh, and part of this, the, the Eastern formulas, I forgot to mention, uh, their main point was they wanted three hypostases. And actually, uh, right before uh, Constantine's death, the West kind of in reaction to the East's uh, not going along, they insisted that uh, they had tried to have an ecumenical council at Sardica, uh, modern Sofia in, in Bulgaria, 
And what happened was because they couldn't agree on who was going to sit in the council, they actually had two <laughs> councils. And the, the Western Council decided that uh, the Trinity is one hypothesis, definitely. And the, uh, the Eastern Council said, no, it's three hypotheses. And so they uh, were kind of at an impasse until uh, the reemergence of, of a new group of Aryans in the East who appropriately are called the Neo-Aryans, or just New Aryans, who uh, began to teach that uh, the, the Son was different from the Father. So the Son is, in other words, he's not God at all. And this um, caused a crisis in the East because they're sort of, their whole focus was again on the three hypotheses, the reality of the three persons of the Trinity, and they had been very hesitant to use homoousius, and so they had this very vague language to defend against Arianism. But with the reemergence of Arianism, they now again raise the question, well, what are we going to do to keep out uh, the Arians? And so this kind of provoked a new effort in the East towards uh, coming to an anti-Aryan uh, formula. And there were various attempts. And this is where uh, the Cappadocian Fathers fit in. That's a term, Cappadocia is this area up in here. And those are Basil the Great, uh, Gregory the Theologian, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. They were, these were people who were part of the Eastern Church, but who were uh, concerned about the reemergence of Arianism and so felt that something more had to be done to try to counteract it. And they began uh, negotiations with Athanasius, who was still alive uh, down here. Actually, be before the Cappadocian Fathers were part of the church of the patriarch Meletius of Antioch. And he was really the one who got it going. But uh, ultimately, uh, the person who was seen as the prime mover in ultimately re reconciling uh, the Nicaeans with the Eastern Church was Basil the Great, but he came later. It started with his, with his uh, well, he, he was sort of a follower of Meletius, although he wasn't strictly in his patriarchy. But, but this um, led to a meeting in Alexandria in 362 where uh, Athanasius, well, Basil always wanted, he wanted Athanasius to condemn Marcellus as sort of a token, you know, that they were, that he recognized the danger of, of modalism. But uh, apparently Athanasius never, never would do it, although ultimately the Western Church agreed to do that. And at, at the Second Ecumenical Council, Marcellus, I believe, was condemned. But, uh, but he did agree to accept the formula, uh, the three hypostases. And that was the turning point because the West wanted the homoousios, uh, coming from, again, the consubstantial. And the East wanted the three hypostases, which the West didn't want. Well, the West didn't want homoousios because they were afraid it would lead to modalism. The East didn't want three hypostases because they were afraid it would lead to Arianism. And so uh, what this uh, Council of Alexandria accomplished was it, it reached the, a kind of compromise that the uh, Easterners would be willing to accept homoousios if the West would accept the three hypostases, in other words, three persons of the Trinity. 
uh, definitely, as, as, and so as not to have the danger of modalism, and then they would accept homoousius, which would exclude the Arianism. And so the agreement that was reached here uh, ultimately is what led to the Second Ecumenical Council, where we ended up uh, with the creed and the form we have now, and also uh, the idea when we now we talk about the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, we don't say, oh, one, one nature, one hypothesis. We say one nature, three hypotheses, homoousios. It comes from this combination of Nicaea and the earlier Eastern terminology of the three natures. And uh, the text of that council, if any of you have the, um, the Nicene Father, this is the volume on Athanasius. And he, uh, in here it goes through it, um, where he, he asks uh, Athanasius, basically, he doesn't uh, condemn the, count, the Western Council of Sardica, but what he says that sort of is improper for them to issue another creed using one hypothesis. So he kind of disavows that as having any authority. And then he says, well, you know, so what is it that the, three, the people from the East, they want the three hypotheses, what does that mean? And then he, you know, that, that by this they don't mean Arianism, but rather preserving the three natures. And then uh, what is it that the West wants? Are they, you know, that the West is not trying to impose modalism, but rather only trying to guard against Arianism. And so by kind of, uh, it's another important uh, point in, in, the, in the church is that we often, we very much fixate on uh, the formulas because the formulas, I mean, are important and they're what uh, the past kind of ends up with where they finally agree on a certain formula. But what the, if you look at this, this and also the Fifth Ecological Council, one of the things that the church is, says is that, well, the formulas, you know, words can have different meanings, and that's what's important, really, is the preserving the correct understanding. And so uh, which words you use, I mean, in a way, it depends on how you understand the words. And so here they, you know, put, this is part of this discussion uh, that, that it's, in a sense, well, each of us are using different, completely opposite formulas, <laughs> but our opposite formulas, as long as we mean the same thing, well, then we can put the two together. And that's uh, sort of, so it's not so much just the words, but what the meaning of the words is. That's important. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to stop here because I, I want to do the next one on the Second Ecumenical Council and uh, the Cappadocian Fathers. But uh, Athanasius, I'll just say Athanasius is kind of the, the main father of this early period. And although he was not uh, condemned for doctrinal reasons, he kind of, he was sort of seen as a champion of the Council of Nicaea. And when he went to the West, he was very influential in bringing the West to see the importance of the uh, struggle against Arianism. And then went in the East, he also uh, spent some time in exile down among the monastics. And that was, that was actually very important for healing finally the Miletian schism because uh, by being out in the country with the, with the monks that gave him credibility with the, with the Miletians but it also allowed him to sort of unite uh, the monastic movement sort of into, more centrally into the church and his, he was the one who wrote the life of uh, St. Anthony the Great which uh, many probably read but uh, he, that was really the first uh, life of a saint. And when he was in the West, you know, his, he spoke a lot about the uh, monastics uh, there. And so that the popularity of monasticism in the West 
uh, is also partly due to Athanasius' uh, time of exile there. So that's uh, as far as I'll go. Yes? Uh, you were talking about how there was actually not much disagreement about uh, the Arian heresy by the time the Council of Nicaea met. That's right. Uh, I remember the anecdote of uh, St. Nicholas getting uh, in trouble for slapping well, he hit he hit Arius. I oh, guess. Arius. Yes, Arius. Yeah, he was uh, well because Arius was denying uh, the divinity of Christ, and the problem uh, with that is that it denies uh, sort of the basis of Christianity. Because then it, I mean, whether you say he's uh, some kind of angelic being or something, uh, there's still uh, one of the things in Athanasius's writings in his book, which is actually written earlier on the incarnation. Uh, it, he connects the divinity of Christ as being necessary uh, for our, that our salvation is dependent upon uh, the Son of God's actually being uh, the divine Son of God. And so that's a kind of central part of the Christian faith. Uh, yes? Also, I'm, just, I'm sorry, another quick question about uh, Athanasius was uh, I understand that his listing of the uh, books of the New Testament mm-hmm. is not considered uh, is the earliest surviving list of the canonical books or I don't think so there are a number of lists from the uh, of uh, old and New Testament books that were done uh, I'm not actually sure which is the oldest one but I, I don't think his is okay well I mean there were a lot of other lists but I heard that they included additional books that his didn't or or excluded some that his included, but his was the, 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 the as far as the precision of the set. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There were the early uh, lists, some of them did include uh, some of the early apostolic fathers and um, sometimes excluded uh, Revelation and a few of the other epistles. But uh, it just, I think, as time went on, there was just a consensus that arose. I don't think the, the canon isn't really based on one person deciding you know which books are which but rather that is each area perhaps had a slightly different way of looking at it and then as it they kind of uh, compared they came up with a an agreement and that's what we have today for the New Testament is there any other questions what yeah. year was the second ecumenical council? 381. Okay, yeah. so the three yeah. is Council of Alexandria is not... Well, yeah, that was a regional council. and Actually, I just want to, there's, a, there's a quote from uh, Jerome where he uh, said that, you know, the world awoke one day to find itself Aryan. And this really represents a particular, uh, perhaps Western point of view, which was that, uh, that everyone in the East, you see, was, they saw them all as Aryans. But uh, really, uh, the Eastern Church as a whole never, you know, was not Arian. But there, there were, uh, I mean, after Arius was condemned, I mean, uh, you know, everyone agreed with that. And then when, and then the rise of the Neo-Arians, uh, pretty much everybody agreed that they had to be uh, condemned also in the East. And that's was per, sort of provoked, you know, a move back to Nicaea. But you had uh, you definitely had a split between east and west, but the split was not a, about Arianism; was a split about terminology. But from his point of view, actually, say Jerome did not accept uh, this kind of uh, reconciliation at, at first. He uh, was part 
of a group called the Old Nicaeans who wanted, really didn't want to have anything to do with the Eastern uh, Fathers, but that's because he was part of this group that just saw um, the Easterners as just anybody who wasn't following Nicaea was necessarily Aryan, and that, that's not really uh, the point of the Eastern Fathers. These, these councils weren't to promote Arianism, they were basically to try to you could think of them more as sort of a kind of fundamentalism, which was that we don't want to add anything new, any new terms. And that's, a, I guess, sort of an interesting point is that the, the church, you know, ultimately does decide to adopt, adopt non-biblical terms because, um, in a way, I guess that what the church does is they see that, that, again, the terms are not the important thing, but rather that the theology is the important thing. So they... So we do. We don't. We don't just stick with the words used in the Bible, but we 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 started bringing in philosophical words. Yes. Is this still an ongoing debate? Not well. Um, it yes and no. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, okay. The debate about the terminology no ended in 381. Modalism. Right. Uh, yes. No. That that it was settled in at that time. But there's in modern times, of course, all these uh, heresies are sort of being reborn uh, because of uh, Christianity is very divided, and people have so there are people today who are modalists and people today who are Arians. And officially, the Orthodox Church is. Oh well, we can condemn. Uh, well, we condemn both from this time. We we don't. Both. Yeah, we don't. We don't we condemn Arianism and modalism. Yeah. Well, modalism, okay, because, the, the, why? The modalism is saying that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not three separate persons, okay? So that's a mistake because we, yeah, we say they are different people, but uh, Arianus, Arius is saying that uh, Christ is not divine, that the Son of God is not, he's a separate person, but he's a, he's a separate non-God person, and we're, uh, saying, well, that's a mistake also because the Son of God is the same divine nature as the Father, but, uh, but, a, but, a, but, a, pers but a, a, a person, that's just the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all three persons, but they're all divine. So that's, that's what the uh, teaching of the church has been, you know. I mean, that was really, the, it's always been the teaching of the church, but the terminology, has been, you know, was what took a while to uh, agree upon. And examples of um, Arianism today are the Way International and Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, would be modern Arian. Yeah. And what, is it fair to say that, that the Eastern and the Western churches are not in disagreement on this? No, at 381 is when they, right. the Second Ecumenical Council was the council that reconciled it. And uh, this is, I'm I, leaving you at 362 just so I can take, kind of hit the, the Second Council uh, you know, hit it running uh, to get the Cappadocians in there more. Yes? Using the terms um, person or hypothesis yes. and, and essence uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that they have come to be accepted in, in the orthodox sense of those terms. Right. Would I be correct in saying that Arius would say three persons uh, yeah, three persons, but three essences. Yes, that's right. And the modalists would say one essence and three persons. 
No, modalists would no, say one, one, one and one. Yeah. One and one, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And the church is one essence, one one divine essence and three persons. I know that in the Episcopal Church there were lots of modalist teaching. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yes. Huh. And, uh, and and many of the many of the liberal Protestant denominations uh, they don't call themselves modalists, you know, yeah. but, but that's exactly. What well, that's a, I would have thought they would, the modern ones would have tended towards Arianism, but uh, but that's interesting that they at least want to uh, preserve the divinity of the Son. Now, do they what do they equate uh, the Son of God with with Jesus of Nazareth? Is that? Oh well, that's entirely dramatic. Yes. Well. Okay. <laughs> well, and that's a that's a different controversy too. So <laughs> we'll get it. We'll get it future time. Yes. So does the uh, at some point the, uh, the Orthodox Church uh, wound up going a different path from the what we now call Monophysite churches? Uh-huh. Is that is any of the roots of that in here already? That no. Later. It's a it's a very similar type of problem. Because it was primarily a case of uh, terminological fundamentalism, that the Monophysites simply did not want to introduce new terminology, which also was really derived from Latin. Our term, uh, what happened? Because the term "fusus" in Greek had a sort of ambiguous meaning, and the term "natura" in Latin is very, you know, means nature, what we mean in English. But "fusus" did not necessarily mean that, and so when uh, the Council of Chalcedon introduced, in a sense, translated Latin terminology into Greek. Uh, this caused a problem with those who felt that, that new terminology should not be introduced, especially when that terminology in Greek could have a very different meaning. Right, and so uh, so that's really what that whole controversy is about. It's, a, it's actually very similar to the, what the Eastern Fathers were um, concerned about with the Nicene terminology. So they didn't. They didn't want innovation, but but I guess the interesting thing is that, that in a way we, the church does uh, innovate in using new terms. But it's but the new when we do that, we're using new. We introduce new terms, philosophical terms, and, and uh, terms from other languages. We do it in a way to make more clear the faith that we already have, not to introduce a new doctrine, but to explain that doctrine more clearly. These guys were pretty passionate. Did they were they pretty civil to each other? Or did they kill each other? Oh no, they didn't kill each other. No, they were. It was a you know debate between bishops. They didn't. They didn't kill each other. Would you like to talk about the the practical ramifications of a of a person who holds to either Arianism or Sabellianism? Uh. Well, I guess. With the Sabellianism, they were concerned that uh, it tends to deny the reality of of uh, Christ and and uh, the Holy Spirit, and uh, that they it doesn't see them as real persons, but as just kind of manifestations of, of God. And the other with the with Arianism is that it's not that the salvation that the the uh, work of salvation is not being done by uh, God, but is being done by uh, by an sort of angelic being is coming and saving us rather than than God. And so, from Athanasius' point of view, uh, because uh, we were created by God and we are uh, 
sort of fell away from God, that it's God who has to come to, to uh, bring us back to him. And so that's why, uh, well, and it just was the tradition of the church that Christ is the son of God, that, uh, that, he, that he was uh, divine. So, uh, you know, it was just seen as uh, blasphemous as well as, as kind of separating us from God's act of salvation. So yes. an angelic being could not do the work of salvation. Right, so that was, yeah, had to be God. God's acting through his son, that was. Prophet Elijah, Moses. Yes. They did quite a bit. Yes, they, they did, and that's. I think the heresy was is that um, Arius was trying to classify Jesus with those. That's right, exactly. Yes, this was, well, this was a problem in the church. As you remember, the church uh, originally was a Jewish group, and so part of, uh, you know, the temptation is to look at, in kind of wanting to defend the unity of, of God, to say, well, okay, the Father is God, and to see Jesus as a prophet. Uh, and this was... Um, uh, you know, not a widespread, but it was a, a temptation that the early church faced, which was called uh, adoptionism. Uh, but the, uh, in a way, Arianism is sort of a continuation. Arianism is a little different in that it doesn't see him only as a man, but as something more. But as but that that whatever that more is, it's it's still not God. Yeah. Remember the story of the three moons a couple weeks ago. The, the, Oh, right, yes, okay. okay. I see where they would be confused. Mm -hmm. Elijah and Moses and Jesus all together. Okay, I mean, okay, of putting them, yeah, on the same level. So is it really heresy for them to interpret it that way? Well, yes, uh, because a heresy, I mean, is, uh, well, I mean, it's perhaps an understandable mistake, but when we say a heresy, what we're meaning is uh, a teaching which is, especially when you try to impose that teaching as the church is teaching, that it, it heresy is something that's different from the church's uh, inherited tradition uh, from the apostles that is now being imposed in the church. It's one thing if you are uh, outside the church and you happen to have this opinion, uh, we wouldn't call it a heresy because it's somebody over there. You know, they can believe what they you can believe what you want, I guess, but. It's when you try to uh, change the church's teaching, then we then we call that a heresy. That's uh, and so it, while it, it could, you know, it was something perhaps understandable that that happened. We still, it's interesting that the, the uh, apostles, who were and and most of the you know the entire early church was coming out of uh, of uh, Judaism, but in, and in fact, it saw itself as as the true Israel. Um, that this heresy was not very widespread, that in fact the church, the apostles and the church were united in the belief in, in the uh, Christ was the well, divine I, son of God. Of yes. Jewish, right. Why are we Orthodox and not Jewish? Well, uh, I guess we would say that we were, uh, that w the Orthodox church is Israel. It's the true Israel. That's why, uh, and, but we would say that modern Judaism, by not accepting Christ, it's not. Well, because right. 
Well, from our own point of view, I guess we would say we are, but uh, we would say that they are not the ones who call themselves that because they, by, by not accepting uh, the Messiah when he came, that the, the, uh, the Jews who did not accept Christ uh, sort of did not remain the true Israel. So the church, that's why when we have the Passover uh, service of being Pascha, it just, it just means Passover. And so, um, you know, when we're seeing, we sort of don't, lo we kind of lose it by using the, uh, the term Pascha as if it was something separate from Passover. Uh, this, you know, the true, pa well, we're talking about the true Pascha, the true Passover. That this, there was the Passover of the Old Testament. We are, we are celebrating that, but we're also celebrating it as the Passover, the, the new Passover of Christ. So we're not. If Jesus was the fulfillment mm -hmm. of all of that before, mm -hmm. why do we even separate the Old and the New Testament? Well, we don't actually. I mean, we all. We, I mean, it's separated in in the books, but uh, the, de the I guess in that sense, the, the sort of formal separation is the New Testament is the is the books uh, written after the coming of Christ, and the Old Testament is the books written before. But we we put it all together in, in the single scripture uh, as. You know, in a sense, we're not we're not different from the Protestants and the Catholics on this. I mean, they they uh, of course they're coming out of ultimately the Orthodox tr tradition. Pardon? Well, they may ignore it, but you know, in their Bible, the book they carry has both, and the reason is because they um, are coming from the Orthodox Church, which says you know which saw itself as the the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament Israel. And uh, as opposed to uh, one of the things we talked about earlier was the uh, heresy of Gnosticism, which tried to see Christ and the church as a rejection of the Old Testament. And the church re rejected Gnosticism, said no, um, that, that Christ is the son of the God who created the world in the Old Testament and that he himself took part in that creation. And so where we are is the... Uh, we are the, the continuation and fulfillment of, of Israel <coughs> with the coming of Christ. Is there any other? Uh, oh, yes, go ahead. Question. Uh, in your presentation, it sounded like even though uh, Arius and all the teaching and stuff was in the you know, Alexandria in the East, it sounded like the West was first more affected by it than the East. Is that correct? No. Uh, the West was more con more concerned with it, and so they uh, they they really saw Arianism as a problem, and they didn't really see modalism as a problem at first, and so that was why uh, you know they couldn't really understand what the Eastern Fathers were so concerned about. It, it's interesting as historically the West actually was the ones who had to deal with modal with Arianism much later, because uh, during this time. There's when the missionary work among the Goths was done, and so the Goths were converted to a kind of Arianist uh, type of beliefs. And when they came to, in, when they took over the West, they wanted to preserve their nationality separate from the people they were taking over. And so one of the ways they did that was to maintain a separate Arian church for their warrior. Class, and then that way uh, they wouldn't be integrated in with the rest of that. You know, in one way it helped preserve their military power, and the other way it, it weakened their countries. Uh, 
ultimately all those tribes eventually became Orthodox. But the West actually was faced with uh, persecutions in some of the cases, particularly North Africa, uh, the Vandals uh, were, for some reason, uh, when they came into Orthodox North Africa, they were persecuting the Orthodox Christians. The other places, leaders of the German tribes were using it as a device, so they weren't that anxious to have the people in the province join their church because they didn't want, they really didn't want the two intermingling. So. Now what's the uh, difference between Arianism and semi-Arianism? Oh, well, semi-Arianism is the term that was used by, in, by sort of Western uh, writers to denote, uh, let's say, this, this conservative Eastern reaction against uh, the term homoousius. So what they mean is, okay, so these people really aren't Arians, they're not teaching Arianism, but because they're not accepting homoousius, we have to call them something, so they call them semi-Arians, but, but they're not. The council in Spain that first came up with Oakway was supposed yes. to be in response to semi-Arianism in that area. Well, it was actually in response to the German Arianism of the Visigoths much later. Is there anything else?